0: Hello everyone and welcome to episode 102 of the History Hotline. My name is Diana Lynn Cook and I will be your host today. We will be continuing on our episode, our part two of the episode that was thinking about William Cuffey and the Chartist movement and we're thinking about The 1840s, as we look at what happened to him, what happened to Chartism, did he get the kind of um, petition that he was working towards, obviously within the Chartist movement, for reforms when it came to voting rights and elections? Um, So, we're going to be thinking about all that today and also how he ends up in Tasmania, exiled. I need you to listen to the past episode if you haven't already done so. This one won't make much sense um, if you don't. So tune into episode 101 um, in order to catch up and to figure out what's happening as we fast forward to 1842. So just a mini recap, in 1842 where we left off, William Coffey had been unanimously elected chair of the Great Public Meeting of tailors. He was a trained tailor, um, that's the work he did before he entered into politics, Um, and they adopted the second national petition in support of the New People's Charter. Um, This charter was signed by a third of the adult population. Within the charter, there were calls for um, Ireland's independence, amongst other points um, which have been mentioned uh, already on the past episode. It's often noted that whilst the Chartists at that point were unsuccessful in their movement, it was truly the first national mass movement of working class people and it really did change the way that people kind of positioned and thought about working class men and women as they were kind of taking on this role to change a political system to allow them to have more power within British society, politically um, and economically, eventually, um, because it was definitely the case at the time even more so than today maybe that it was a very small percentage of society that had all the power all the wealth all the land and all the influence and they were just kind of creating and upholding the laws that allowed them to just recycle the same wealth within their own families and with their own estates um, and not allowing working people who were essentially exploited under capitalism um, doing the hard laborious days of work um, and not really getting any political representation and also very few working rights as a result of their hard labour. As we get into this later um, period in the 1840s um, and further in, it is a case that a lot of Chartists and people associated with the Chartist movement are being arrested, um, and William Coffey quite quickly moves up the ranks to the Chartist National Executive, um, which I'm assuming is like a board and kind of a group, a more senior group within the Chartist movement he takes on more speaking engagements and it's in this kind of role that he begins to speak more on his african ancestry and also he's at this point targeted a lot and we mentioned it in the last episode um about his race in the media specifically um there is a lot of uh, racial slurs um and negative racially biased media attention on him at this time um i'll note one from the times um, which refers to him as the black man and his party and the times at this point and well i don't think much has changed today it's it's owned and run by people with money and power um and it is a paper that represents the interests of those people with money and power. So it's obviously not going to speak favorably on anybody associated with the Chartist movement, especially not, um, a quote unquote black man and his party. And that's the way they've positioned, um, William Coffee within the Chartist movement. Um, and it's a very mocking tone. It's, it's not positive in any way, shape or form. You know, they're not saluting him for being a black man in charge of a party. Um, it's very derogatory, Um, And this is what's going out to like the whole of British society through the media. This isn't just, you know, somebody making a comment. This is in the Times. This is quite big um, and it's quite a deliberate campaign to target him. I think also it's very important to reiterate the idea that everything that the Chartists were doing regarding voting rights and petitioning Parliament to change them was to shift power and to give more power to working people and to remove some of that power from the wealthy, elite, ruling classes of people that held all the wealth, held all the power, held all the estates and were the only people that could vote and run as MPs and be elected because MPs weren't paid. So obviously unless you could afford to not be paid in a role like that, you couldn't take it on. You also couldn't vote if you weren't a tiered man. Um, women were not even in the equation, so we're not even thinking about them at this point. Um, you know, the suffragettes and all of those that worked uh, for women to get the vote come a little bit later. Um, but it is the case at this point that, you know, they are the group doing that work to try and make british society a little bit more equitable um and william coffey finds himself um kind of climbing through the ranks of this movement um due to his powerful um oratory his loyalty to the movement his commitment he's very passionate it comes through in a lot of his speeches um, and a lot of documents and um, descriptions of him at the time that he he was very clear that you know he was willing to to be a martyr to this cause essentially In 1848, there was a demonstration in London and it was welcoming the French Revolution, not the French Revolution, that was in 1789, I think ended up finishing in 1799, but there was like a second wave of revolutionary movement in France in 1848 Um, and there was a demonstration whereby William Coffey was supporting leader Ernest Jones who opposed british interference within that revolution in france um and so you know there were thousands of people out demonstrating the chartists were obviously involved um william coffey's not the leader of the chartists um it's ernest jones and so you know he's obviously there in support um however this i think historical moment marks an interesting criminalisation of those involved in protest movements. And I don't know why, I can always find similarities to today. Um, But, you know, as we see the government trying to pass laws that limit the right to protest, um, it was clear that they maybe took their tactics from the 19th century. Anyway, um, these disturbances uh, kind of came out of this um, protest in 1848 and there was looting in Camberwell and of course somebody had to be made responsible you know they had to find out who did it um, and two men were accused and those two men happened to be black men David Anthony Duffy and Benjamin Prophet were arrested tried and convicted. With others as well, they weren't the only ones, but they're often named, and they're named in Hakeem Adi's African and Caribbean People in Britain, Struggles for the Rights of All, um, that chapter. Uh, And it's very interesting, I think, that they are kind of named, they are some of the most prominent to come out of this uh demonstration and to find themselves um in prison and actually what happens to them um is that they are said to have definitely been the ones looting they're charged with housebreaking and larceny um and they it's believed that witnesses say yep it was these two and have identified them however um it is very clear from records that No one's really sure if they were just participants or they were the actual leaders. But what is clear is that they were made an example of. Um, And Benjamin Prophet, who is referred to as Black Ben, 29 years old, um, he claims his innocence throughout his um, trial, but he's given 14 years transportation. And you might be wondering, what is transportation? Well, it's often known as criminal transportation Um, and before transportation this is information confirmed from the National Archives website but um, most criminal offences were actually punishable by death, a fine or whipping. Um, And transportation was an alternative punishment for crimes which were considered serious but not worthy of death or execution. And I just find it really funny that, again, we're in the 19th century and Britain is removing those convicted of crimes from British soil and sending them to other countries. It just sounds so familiar. I wonder where I've heard that before. Hmm. Anyway... The usual period of transportation was 14 years um, and it was for convicts who essentially aren't going to be given a death sentence um, or have been given pardons um, from those death sentences or seven years um, for lesser offences. So if you've done something that wouldn't have required you to have um, the death penalty you would only be transported for seven years, but it seems the options were only seven or 14. Um, At this point in 1848, it was common that Tasmania was the place that convicts would end up prior to this, um, prior to the American Revolution of 1776. Transportation was to North America, um, but this was no longer possible after the American Revolution because America are now independent um, and Britain can't send the convicts there because they don't own it well they don't own enough of the land or any kind of have any power to be able to do that Um, and they were instead sent to um, new penal colonies in what we now know as Australia um, and it was the 13th of May 1787 where the first fleet set sail. There was actually a period as well um, in between the American Revolution and that first ship set in sail in 1787, um, whereby prisons were actually becoming very overcrowded um, because the government were still actually passing transportation as a sentence for people. Um, and so those convicts were held in prison waiting to be transported. Um, and the government at this time kind of had to figure out where they were going to send them to and it was decided that it would be you know, what we now know as Australia. Um, the prisons were getting very overcrowded during this time um, and actually they would put convicts on derelict ships um, that were moored in coastal waters as a way of kind of providing extra accommodation. So, you know, not only were they literally waiting to be transported in prisons, but they were literally waiting in derelict ships to be transported. Um, this process was actually running all the way until 1868, and when it was abolished. Um, but effectively, uh, after 1857, it kind of stopped um, in all senses of the word, because it was just so unusual Um, that it didn't really go on, but it was properly abolished in 1868. Um, It's said that around 158,702 convicts arrived in Australia from England and Ireland during the 80-year history of transportation, um, as well as 1,321 from other parts of the empire. So this was something very common, you know, 158,000 plus people is not a small number, um, and their lives were completely changed, uprooted because Britain couldn't, wouldn't and didn't want to keep those who'd committed crimes on British soil in Britain. As I said, sounds very familiar. Um, thinking, about, thinking about planes that are landing in a variety of destinations um, with people that have committed crimes and actually can you know, finish their sentences in UK prisons, but are being deported regardless. I'm not gonna say too much about that, but it is very, very crazy I find it absolutely wild when I can make connections between nineteenth century Britain and 2023. That is shouldn't shouldn't be the case, I don't think personally. There there really shouldn't be much we're doing that was done in the nineteenth century, I don't think, when it comes to um prison rehabilitation conviction, punishment, ah, I don't know, doesn't sit well with me. Anyway, back to Benjamin Prophet and David Anthony Duffy. Um, Benjamin Prophet isn't actually transported in the end, he's actually imprisoned and then paroled in 1855, um, so not too long after um, he is sentenced, he's obviously not given the 14 years transportation that he was um, originally uh, given as his punishment. David Anthony Duffy, um, the other man that is um, arrested uh, for this charge, he is an unemployed seaman, labourer, and known as a beggar um, at the Mint. And he is known, and I quote, as well-known Suffolk slum, where he went about without shirt, shoe, or stocking. Um, And as I said before, Prophet and Duffy were both arrested Um, And Duffy was found guilty of feloniously breaking and entering the dwelling house of Thomas Gray, stealing therein 200 watches and other articles, his property, and was sentenced um, to be transported for seven years. Um, As I mentioned, Prophet was sentenced to 14 um, and of course didn't actually end up being transported, but the case with those two, and I think why they're important in this story is that they are the stories of of another two black men um and I think they show that whilst William Coffey is often the figure we bring up and he's essentially the figure that i've centered these two episodes around, he wasn't the only black man that was part of the Chartist movement within um Britain and British society at that time and he definitely isn't an exception as a black man navigating 19th century Britain. Um, it is the case however that those two are given a lot harsher sentences than others convicted alongside of them um, which is arguably why we remember their stories and why we've even speaking about them. Um, we don't know if they were... Leaders, If they were participants, if they even did what they were accused of, I mean, they both pled their innocence um, in court and, you know, prior to them being arrested. So it is, you know, the case that their stories just represent this um, pattern, I guess we can say. Um, with black men, um, being part of this movement, um, coffee not being the only one, um, but also ending up um, on trial and going to prison for crimes associated uh, with being a Chartist. In April 1848, the last Chartist petition was put to Parliament and by this point, William Cuffey was one of three London delegates to the National Convention. As I said, during this kind of time period in the late 1840s, he really is climbing the ranks um, through the Chartist movement. And that's coming with negativity from the media, but in some ways it's also coming with support from within the Chartist movement. It's also coming with an increased risk of serious consequence and problems at the hands of the police because well essentially they're spies within the ranks of the chartists there were police agents and those working for the state to um, be informants um, and this is how william Coffee uh, ends up in problems in a lot of hot water in his role uh, as one of the three london delegates to the national convention His job was to meet um, and to prepare for a mass demonstration in support of this petition. During this time, the government readied itself. They readied its resistance. They had police, they had troops, they had cavalry, artillery, and they even removed the Queen of England from London for fears for her safety. Um, And this demonstration went on. With 150,000 people, some were Irish demonstrators um, marching for independence for Ireland and they marched um, to Kennington Common on the 10th of April 1848. The 1848 petition was the last one, as I mentioned before, um, and it was led by Fergus O'Connor, who collected over 5 million signatories on behalf of the movement. Um, They wanted to see all adult men, regardless of social position, be given the right to vote, very similar to their aims in 1842. They also wanted annual elections, as we said, equal numbers of voters in each constituency, MPs to be paid, vote by secret ballot and that kind of thing. However, Parliament votes against this, um, 222 votes to 17 and, you know, they were unsuccessful, but very, very interestingly, and I think a bit of a sad one to the story, it's good and it's bad, but by 1918, all but one of the original demands had actually been passed by Parliament in the representation of the People's Act. So at this point, you know, the Chartists weren't presenting petitions to Parliament, but just because of the way that society was moving, and actually, um, kind of in the um, aftermath of World War One, it was a case that, a lot more people were enfranchised um, with the representation of the People Act that was pushed through. Um, But, you know, we could argue, and I think it would be very easy to argue that it was the work of the Chartists in the early 19th century, pushing forward these demands for a more equitable society for working people um, that led to, you know, this um, act in 1918. So this demonstration, but just before I get onto it, I think it's a good point to just reiterate the point that the Chartist movement was huge. Um, It had different organisations that were kind of attached to it, supporting it, um, and that they would work with to support their aims, just like Irish independence, for example. But also it was definitely the case um, that there were groups of Chartists all over the country. This wasn't something that was just reserved for London. I've seen and read articles about the Chartists in Birmingham um, and it was a very important and a very large organisation. They're getting millions of signatures on these petitions um, across 1842 and 1848 and the kind of time in between and prior to those dates as well. So it isn't just a case that this is a small group of people. This is a national organisation with also an international outlook. Coffee often speaks about his African heritage and also his international perspective um, on these issues of equality um, that are occurring in Britain. But he can kind of see um, things like enslavement and the slave trade that um, has kind of happened as well or linking in to this story of exploitation of people. Um, and it's definitely the case that um, this was a big think and i just find it quite interesting actually that it's not something that is commonly taught because it really does highlight the power of working people and working class people um and i think it would be something that could actually be very important to be taught about not just on a oh we need more black history but you know these are really interesting parts of british history especially with spies within the choice movement that is fascinating to me. I'd love to learn about that at school. So, back to this demonstration of which William Cuffey was the chair of the demonstration committee. Um, As I mentioned, 150,000 people were marching in London. However, the government had banned any mass presentation of a petition to Parliament um, but the organisers in the Chartist movement hadn't actually told the crowds that. Um, and so when they find out, Coffee addresses the crowds and scolds the leaders for not actually mentioning this um, sooner because the demonstrators cannot go to Parliament to um, present this petition, this um, Chartist petition. Um, I just also want to note that William Coffee is about 60 years old at this point, um, which I think is very extremely crazy to me just because it's the 19th century um, and life expectancy isn't what it is today um, but this man is still going very strong in his resolve using language like and i quote the executive should be prepared to lead on to liberty or death very much a language in the vibe of the french revolution that's come at the end of the 18th century you know um liberty or death Death, And that is what he believes leaders um, should have as their um, ideology and as, you know, basically what will happen, Um, liberty or death. There is only two options. They're not backing down. And he often criticises leaders within chartism for being a bit half-hearted, a bit lukewarm in their politics and not really being all the way down to the point of death, martyrdom for this cause, which he clearly is all the way down for. And now as we get to the final part of this episode I just wanted to give a shout out to the two texts um, and archives and sites I'm using for the majority of this episode so the National Archives have a lot of information on the Chartist movement, thank you to them um, and staying powered by Peter Fryer as well as um, Professor Hakeem Adi's, um African and Caribbean people in Britain and now it is the case um, that at this point um, a lot of Chartist leaders are being arrested demonstrations are being banned um as legislation is coming in to crack down on all of this sounds very familiar yes it does indeed um and it's at this point that coffee still continues to take on more roles and climb within the ranks and it is unfortunately at this point he is arrested and tried for and i quote levying war on the queen which is a very very big charge um You know, he became very much loyal to this cause, as I said, you know, liberty or death. He refused um, to give up the fight. Um, And even when he could have kind of abandoned the scene um, and get away to save his own skin, he chooses not to. And it's why he's arrested. Um, He's also armed. Um, He's receiving death threats um, I'd say probably as a result of the media um, for one case uh, and the way that he's being portrayed in that Um, but also uh, and I quote from um, Hakeem Adi's book from the enemies of the workers um, he is receiving death threats and decides to arm himself and this is probably to his detriment as well. Um, And he ends up in court on trial uh, for these charges. Um, You know, he draws on the press and what they've done to him and their prejudice. And he says, and I quote, the great prejudice that has been raised against me by the press. Um, The racial insults are brought up and and things of that nature. Um, He asks for a jury of his equals and he's denied that. Um, and this is quite important in the case. And I think his speech um, that he is he gives in, in the trial um, is something that I'm going to share with you because it really does sum up his feelings towards not only this justice system, uh, and I use that term very loosely, but also the movement and, and its aims and what he was trying to achieve um, as a leader within it. Going to read the speech um, from the dock that William Cuffey gave in 1848 in sections, not all of it, because it is very long. Um, and he brings in obviously some things that I haven't gone into detail about within his case. Obviously, I haven't given you the whole life story of William Cuffey and, and everything that happened. It is more of an overview, I'd say, in this episode and the last one. So, and I quote. My Lords, I say you ought not to sentence me first, because although this has been a long and important trial, it has not been a fair trial, and my request was not complied with, to have a jury of my equals. But the jury, as it is, I have no fault to find with it. I dare say they have acted conscientiously. The next reason that I ought not to be sentenced is on account of the great prejudice that has been raised against me, in particular, for months past. Everybody that hears me is convinced that almost the whole press of this country, and even other countries, has been raising a prejudice against me. I have been taunted by the press, and it has tried to smother me with ridicule, and it has done everything in its power to crush me. I crave no pity. I ask no mercy. He goes on to say, The present government is now supported by a regular organised system of espionage, which is a disgrace to this great and boasted free country. The locality to which I belong never approved of any violence of this sort and never sent any delegates to any such meetings and that you will find proved in this trials of my fellow prisoners who have not yet been tried. They sent no delegates and consequently there were no luminaries nor firebrands sent to Orange Street from that locality. This is another reason why I should not be sentenced. That will be hereafter proved. And he goes on within um, his speech at the dock to explain, um, you know, why he is innocent, why he has a pistol on his um, property, on on himself, um, and essentially just kind of explaining um, why he feels like he's been targeted. And he says, and I quote, I certainly have been an important character in this Chartist movement, I laid myself out for something of this sort from the first. I know that a great many men of good moral character are now suffering in prison, only for advocating the cause of the Charter. But however, I do not despair of its being carried out yet. There may be many victims. I am not anxious for martyrdom, but I feel that after what I have gone through this week, I have the fortitude to endure any punishment your Lordship can inflict upon me. I know my cause is good, and I have a self approving conscience that will bear me up against anything and that would bear me up even to the scaffold; therefore, I think I can endure any punishment proudly. I feel no disgrace at being called a felon, and he goes on with this really powerful language, um just talking about the fact that you know even if he's found guilty, even if he's punished for what he's done, he will not be ashamed. He will not know himself or label himself as a criminal because he has done everything that he feels was just in the situation of injustice against working people um, in Britain. His loyalty to this cause goes on until the very end. And, you know, thankfully he isn't actually... um, given the death uh, sentence or isn't, you know, sentenced to execution uh, in Britain uh, at the hands of the legal system. He's sentenced to transportation um, for life to what is now the area of Tasmania um, and arrives in the penal colony in November 1849. Um, His wife, Marianne, um, actually ends up joining him there in 1853. Um, They both are quite highly regarded still within the movement um, and they do gain public support. However, they are actually, at the end of the day, you know, not in Britain and they have been transported away. Um, they were later; He was later pardoned, um, but he remains in Tasmania, continuing with political activities. One of you to actually um, do that and continue um, his work. When he dies in 1870, and it's the way that um, the kind of section on William Coffey ends in the book um, by Hikim Adi it says he always supported the people's side and opposed everything that tended to cripple the rights of the people and that was in his obituary uh, in 1870 when he passes away and I think that is probably the perfect way to remember a man like William Coffey and all he endeavoured and tried to do um, during his time in Britain um, and you know As a member of the Chartist movement, just simply caring uh, enough to want to see a change um, for ordinary people in Britain. Um, And as a black man navigating that space, facing the extra prejudice um, from the press, the media uh, and the justice system in the end. Um, So, yeah, that is the story of William Cuffey and the Chartist Movement, part two. Um, I hope you have enjoyed this episode. I hope you have a wonderful week. Thank you so much for tuning in and listening. Goodbye. The History Hotline is hosted by Deanna Lynn Cook. Research is done by Zakia Riaz. To continue the conversation about Black history, please follow us on social media at The History Hotline on Instagram and at The History HL on Twitter.